Friday night, and I'm your host, Larry Kay, back with the Logic and Larry podcast. I am recording this in Newark, New Jersey, looking out at busy traffic coming from the Prudential Center, a lit up skyline, and too much fog to see New York City. But I'm coming to you to recap the midterm elections to discuss some of the dynamics at play and to get down to the nitty gritty. Everything I say in this podcast is strictly my own opinion, does not reflect the opinion of any other entity or any other person. I am not speaking to you in any way as in in an official capacity. Everything I say to you is 100% my personal opinion, me talking to you as a private citizen. Nothing I say should be construed as a political endorsement at all. Just talking to you and keeping it real. So the red wave that was supposed to happen turned out to be a drop, more like a red raindrop. (laughs) And we're trying to dissect and figure out why. There's so many competing theories as to why, but I think a lot of it lies in the dynamics of party coalitions, party umbrellas, and party history. And I think a little bit of history is necessary to understand and comprehend the current state of affairs that we're in regarding the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, what it means, why it exists, why it turned out the way it did in this election. Because inflation's high, the president's approval ratings are low. Why on earth, you ask, would the Republicans not have a red wave? Why? Well, let's talk about party history, right? One of the common arguments I usually see when conservatives and progressives are arguing with each other i usually see this argument and this categorization by conservatives that the democratic party is the party of slavery right and that the republican party stood for you know is not racist the democrats are a racist party because they were the party of slavery now that is actually true to some extent right during the times of slavery The Democratic Party was the party that was pro-slave. The Republican Party, believe it or not, was actually founded to abolish slavery. But unlike the parliamentary systems that we see in other democracies across the world, where there's a myriad of different interest groups, constituencies, right? It's not like in America there's just people that are Democrats and agree and align with all the Democratic issues and then Republicans and agree and align with all the Republican issues. No, no, no. There are different constituencies, people that care about gun rights, people that care about abortion rights, people that care about, you know, culture issues, people who care about economic issues. There's competing constituencies of people and they all form coalitions under one party umbrella or the other in the United States because we only have two, right? And so while there's two static party umbrellas, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, there are ever-evolving, ever-shifting constituencies underneath each of those party umbrellas that have changed throughout our history. So when people say that the Democratic Party of old was the party of slaves, right, it was also the party of the common man, the commoner in the South, the commoner who maybe had racist beliefs, who was maybe concerned about being displaced as a worker by the newly freed slaves, and that was a coalition, especially in the South, the Copperhead Democrats, who wanted to keep slavery, while the Republican Party... The Republican Party was a coalition of wealthy, well-to-do, educated businessmen in the North, industrialists, and progressive people, right? The progressives is a constituency in this country, and the progressives 
have continually and continuously existed, but have switched parties over time, right? The modern progressive that you hear about now that is staunchly a member of the Democratic Party, but not the entirety of the Democratic Party. The progressive was the progressive who started the Republican Party back in the 1850s, right? The progressive was usually educated, enlightened too, but cared so much about advancement, morality, freeing the slaves, curing an evil in this country that existed for far too long. While the industrialist, the wealthy banker, the business owner, the person of that class, that person joined in the coalition to form the Republican Party because both thought slavery had to end. The banking class, the wealthy class, thought it was a moral ill. They were more attuned with their European counterparts. They understood that slavery was not tenable, that slavery was evil, and they wanted to eradicate it, but also they understood that the way of the future was not an agrarian feudal system the way it was in the South, but was an industrialist uh, advancing economy like it was in the North. So the original Republican Party was the marriage, the coalition between the wealthy bank owners, you know, bankers and business owners, and the progressives, right? And over time, that shifted, right? So they joined in the coalition to end slavery. And the common people with the democratic side, also the agrarian feudal system people, which were more rural, which wanted to maintain their way of life, which were skeptical of the uh, industrialized north, had their coalition. But in the early 1900s, the early 20th century, the progressive side still staunchly members of the Republican Party. That's the Republicans of Teddy Roosevelt. The progressives started to try to fight for workers' rights. They fought against child labor. They fought on the sides of, of unions. And in doing that, fighting for workers' rights and for better wages and against child labor and for workers organizing the progressives in the Republican Party alienated the industrialists alienated the wealthy alienated the bankers in the Republican Party and wound up finding a home and finding allies in the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party was a large coalition of people who were concerned about equitability economically. They wanted to organize as workers. They demanded fair tax policies. They were skeptical of the rich. And even though they may have had culturally conservative views, even though some of them may have had racist views, they thought it was in their best interest to vote democratic with the progressives because the progressives were helping them in the workplace helping them financially helping them with tax policy and so we saw realignment once again of republicans and democrats in the early 20th century where the progressives left the republican party and joined the democrats meanwhile racially conscious people people who cared about race relations and racial equitability those people stayed with the Republican Party. And so you see that a large amount of African-American voters were Republicans in the early 20th century. And almost the entire South and really almost the entire country, district by district, was Democratic because economically it paid off to vote Democratic for a lot of people. And so you see from the 1930s through the 1970s, All the way up to really 1994, the House of Representatives was dominated and controlled by the Democratic Party 
because that was a coalition of working common people. But that was changed and that was broken up in the mid 20th century with something called the Southern Strategy, which is President Nixon and Barry Goldwater, that era. They wanted to find a way to break the Democrat stranglehold on the House of Representatives, to break the Democrat stranglehold on the South. And the way that that they did that was by shifting coalitions once again, forming new coalitions under the two party umbrellas. What they did was they used cultural issues, the 60s movement, the free love movement, the the cultural progressiveness that progressives were fighting for, as well as counterculturalists. As well as race relations, people fighting for civil rights, they started to demonize those cultural fights. And the Southern strategy was to take a bunch of people in the South who had normally voted with their economic interests, with the progressives on the Democratic side of things, and but were more culturally conservative, more religious minded, more concerned with keeping things the way they were, more skeptical more skeptical of the progressive cultural movement and the Republicans stole those people away and the entire South in a matter of about 10 to 15 years shifted from solidly Democratic voters to solidly Republican voters because the Republican Party became a coalition of wealthy, the wealthy class, the business owners, the bankers, convincing people who were more common people who were not economically advantaged that they needed to stick with the Republican Party vote against their economic interest to maintain the cultural norms of the United States religiously racially things of that nature the progressive stayed with the Democratic side but now the race oriented people the civil rights people people who move for civil rights African American voters they shifted to the Democratic Party because they saw that that's where the progressives were. And the progressives had started with undertaking the mantle of abolishing slavery. They had graduated to workers' rights and living wages and five-day work weeks and pro-unionism. And now they were moving toward cultural progressivism. Civil rights for people of color, for gay people, things of that nature. And that shifted again. So now you had the coalition for most of the latter part of the 20th century up till about 2016 up till about the trump years you had a coalition of the wealthy suburban and elites of the city class with the culturally conservative class versus the progressives and the working class people who were still involved in unions who cared about progressives because progressives were fighting for their rights that was on the democratic side and on the republican side was the wealthy business owners the elites of the cities the elites of the suburbs with the culturally conservative voter but that was untenable because eventually the working class in the democratic party who was pro-union became disenchanted with the way things were because their brethren who were just as economically common and economically struggling as them were voting so much with the Republican Party and progressives in the Democratic Party still had members of the elites in the cities and things and were going so culturally far so culturally far they started pushing the envelope about the last 10-20 years 
people on the Democratic side, the progressives, that part of the Democratic side, the progressives started pushing the envelope far beyond, far beyond what the working class people who had stuck with them could take anymore. And economically, those people felt cheated because increasingly progressives in the elite areas of major cities were joining up with the other elites on the Republican side and were content to continue inequitable economic distribution. And so you saw in 2016 and the races leading up to that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump emerge because working people continuously felt more and more angry and left behind by the elites. And some people viewed the elites as the wealthy, the landowning, the banker class, and those people aligned with Bernie Sanders. And some people saw the elites as those pushing an agenda of cultural progressivism, and they aligned with Donald Trump. But nonetheless, we were due in 2016 for another shift amongst the parties. The coalitions were going to change around under those party umbrellas again, and the parties were going to take on new meaning. And this banker class, this wealthy, this educated, this suburban and city elite class in the Republican Party was not interested in dealings with somebody like Donald Trump who did not have the pedigree, did not have the education, did not have the... the standards that they deem necessary to run a country, right? The suburban people, those in elite cities, they did not feel the traditional Republican base, especially in the Northeast, which had already been gradually changing since the 1980s when New Jersey was a swing state and things like that, where the Northeast could vote Republican because it was the old guard, the old business-owning, banking, industrialized guard. They had been shifting steadily because of cultural progressivism toward the left. But as Donald Trump emerged, you saw the, a lot of people in those, the suburbs and the business-owning class and the, the wealthy elite classes of the cities abandon the Republican Party. You saw this most prevalently in the midterm elections of 2018 and the presidential election of 2020. You saw the suburbs start to coalesce around the left in another coalition now with city dwellers, progressive city dwellers and elite people in the cities and culturally progressive people in the cities in a coalition with the wealthy bankers and suburban class. This is kind of akin to the initial coalition under the Republican umbrella in the 1800s. It is now reformed on the left under the Democratic umbrella. And on the right, you have the working people and those more culturally conservative almost reforming the coalition that used to be under the Democratic Party in the 1800s, now under the Republican umbrella. And you have another shifting dynamic. And I was reading something in The New Yorker the other day that really was interesting on this point. He said, we used to go in the early 2000s, we used to go to Youngstown where all the union workers were and the auto manufacturers were, and that's where we would get our Democratic votes. And we ignored the wealthy affluent suburbs because they were always voting Republican because they were voting for their economic interest. And both sides are voting for their economic interest in that particular state. They said, but that's changed. Now our votes as Democrats are in the suburbs. They're in the elite circles. They're progressively more in the college-educated circles and the people that are more, you know, voting on the on sensibility, on, on, on maintaining order, on, on good pedigrees, on people you want leading your country, on less rocking the boat. And those working-class people in the unions we used to have rely on as Democrats in Ohio, those people are going to Trump because they feel like the Democratic Party hasn't done enough for them economically in years because they're too focused on the culture wars. 
and that the Republican Party, while culturally conservative, also speaks out of Trump's mouth, whether genuine or not, for the working class, for the working people that feel they have been left behind. And so you've seen this evolution of parties, and why do I go on this long-winded thing to open up the podcast about the evolution of political parties and how they have shifted? Well, this coalition explains a lot about why the midterms turned out the way they did, with a historic, with a president with a low approval rating, inflation historically high, and in a midterm year, you wouldn't expect Democrats to do as well as they did. You wouldn't expect them to be close, and we still got to find out what happens in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. You wouldn't expect them to be close to holding on to the Senate, and you wouldn't expect them to really be close to keeping the House. They're going to lose the House, it looks like, but not by much. Republicans might only have a majority in the House of four or five votes, and that's not a good majority because you can easily get four or five Republicans to cross the aisle and still pass legislation now. So things are going to be a lot different than were originally anticipated. And here's the interesting thing about these parties and these coalitions. Here's where I'm going. The way the current coalition is with this loose coalition between progressive thinkers and suburban people who are more well-off and elite people in the cities who are more well-off and this Republican coalition of people who are working class and rural who feel left behind economically and cultural conservatives that are now aligned... And by the way, you still have some of these well-off, wealthy people, these anti-tax people in the Republican Party. But those are more the old guard of the senators like Mitch McConnell and those people. They are not the Trump iteration of the modern Republican. That has issues and friction with it, too, right? Because they're content with somebody like Trump so long as he continues to sign off on their older anti-tax, pro-wealthy, pro-corporation agenda. But when it comes to maintaining order and some semblance of, you know, things functioning the way they've always functioned, they don't get along. And I'll get into that in a minute when I talk about Trump and DeSantis. I'm going to talk about that. But here's the interesting thing. Democrats could have held, probably could have held the House, but they didn't lose seats. They were projected to lose seats in the Midwest, projected to lose seats in Pennsylvania, projected to lose seats elsewhere. They actually defended those seats pretty successfully in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Democrats won those seats. You know where Democrats lost heavily? Democrats lost heavily in downstate New York and Long Island. And when I say downstate New York, I mean New York State, outside New York City, north of New York City, but not all the way upstate. More the suburban downstate area outside of New York City. And they lost those elections, but won the elections in the Midwest. And people are wondering why. If they had held those seats, they probably would have held the House. And here's why, because we are seeing the same dynamics at play in this election as we saw at play in 2020. We are seeing the suburban and urban districts voting blue, voting against. And by the way, a lot of candidates on the Republican side were pro-Trump candidates, election denying candidates. And we saw the same coalition between the urban areas and the suburban areas that we saw in 2020 and then the same coalition in the rural areas. And what went wrong in New York? Well, I can tell you what went wrong in New York. In New York, every ad I saw, ad after ad after ad that I saw in New York, talked about crime, how liberals were too liberal on crime, how it was dangerous in the streets, how they were trying to defund the police, how they had weak prosecutors, the bail reform law in New York wasn't working, and let's face it, crime is up nationwide. And whether you traverse New York City proper a lot or not, Manhattan proper, 
everybody in the New York metropolitan area where I reside, which encompasses southern New York, southern Connecticut, Long Island, eastern Pennsylvania to the north, northern New Jersey, all the way down to the east coast of New Jersey to the south. Everybody's still concerned with New York City and the other urban areas like Newark and Yonkers and these other places. And the fact is that crime is up. Now, it's not up historically like, you know, to 20th century numbers in the 70s or etc. But crime is up. Subway violence is up. Just general petty crimes are up. Gun violence is up. Things are not looking great crime wise. And one issue that I've been telling you for a long time on this show and will continue to tell you on the show, will continue to say and hold my ground on is that I don't think Democrats and more more precisely progressives are going to win the crime issue. They want to make crime part of their progressive agenda. They want to act like crime is the poisoned root rather than a leaf. And I've talked about this before. Crime is the leaf of a poisoned root, guys. Crime is the leaf of a poisoned root. The root that's poisoned is a system which exacerbates inequality in housing, inequality in schools, inequality of opportunity. Those things then lead certain areas to have higher crime. But Democrats want to act as if crime is in a bootstrap paradox and prosecuting crime begets more crime happening. And if you stop prosecuting crime and the numbers of incarceration just went down, then magically crime itself wouldn't happen. They ignore the fact that crimes actually do occur, which is why there are certain incarceration rates and there are certain issues. And that the reason behind that is economic. Now, Democrats have the winning argument when it comes to equitable housing, equitable food, equitable schools, all of those economic answers to solving crime and if they stick to that issue they're going to do much better but in certain areas like the new york area it was successful for republican candidates whether it was true or whether it was just a smear campaign was irrelevant they were successful in painting democrats as soft on crime and people don't like soft on crime and it doesn't matter what, where you're from or what your ethnicity is, etc. It's not, crime is universally people, people and neighborhoods and communities and civilizations pan the world, okay? All over the world in human history, people don't like crime. Crime is not a good thing. No one embraces and likes and enjoys crime, okay? And in fact, if you are from a traditionally marginalized group or you're from an economically disadvantaged area or you're of an economically disadvantaged class you are actually far more likely to be the victim of crime and to suffer the consequences of crime than somebody from a privileged class right so this idea that you know fighting crime is some dog whistle and fighting crime is some terrible thing that the elite use to suppress everybody else is is it really a radical progressive uh academic thing theory that I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think bears out in practical reality. And so they successfully used that argument in the New York area to, and it costed several Democrats their seats. And another interesting place where it took root was in the Wisconsin Senate race. The Wisconsin Senate race, Ron Johnson, who normally was known as a moderate Republican in Wisconsin who could be reliable, he's an incumbent, he's been there a long time, but who had recently pivoted and kind of become an election denier and became kind of a Trumpy, he won against Mandela Barnes, the nominee for the Democratic side. 
Yet, Tony Evers, yet the Democratic governor in Wisconsin won. But the Democratic Senate candidate lost. And that means that people were really going into the booth and voting Democrat on governor, but then consciously splitting the ballot and voting Johnson for Senate rather than Barnes. And now there's a lot of rhetoric going on. There's a lot of conversation that, you know, Johnson improperly smeared Barnes. He improperly advertised that Barnes was for defunding the police, that Barnes was soft on crime, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people have characterized that as a racist attack. Now, there are undeniable tropes in this country, undeniable racist tropes in this country where, yes, associating a African-American candidate with being soft on crime has some racial element. No one's denying that, right? No one's denying the blatant truth of certain things. However, the fact is Mandela Barnes is a very progressive candidate who voted for Bernie Sanders twice by his own admission. He actually delivered the rebuttal speech to President Donald Trump at the time for the Working Families Party. And the Working Families Party is notoriously left, left, left and a Bernie Sanders type thing. He is for eliminating cash bail. Now, cash bail is not an equitable system. Cash bail is not a just system, in my personal opinion. And we've already eliminated cash bail in New Jersey. And we've eliminated cash bail in New York. But in New York, there's all kinds of problems with cash bail because in New York, judges don't have discretion. Judges don't have discretion in New York over... You know, they can't look at an individual person and say, this person's a high risk. This person has been arrested several times in the last two weeks. This person is, has a propensity to commit more crimes. This person has a propensity for violence. They're not allowed to do that. There's categorical re- ways that you can either keep somebody incarcerated pending trial or you have to release them pending trial. And there's no judicial or human discretion. The law is categorical, which is not the best and optimal way to deal with it. That's why Governor Hochul in New York is discussing potential tweaks to the bail system. But of course, the far left progressives don't want any tweaks. But everyday people would love some tweaks because crime is going up. Contrast that to New Jersey, where actually the bail reform bill was signed into a law by former Governor Chris Christie, a Republican. And in our state, not only have we eliminated cash bail and made the system more equitable, but judges have discretion in New Jersey. So human beings can get together, look at facts and evidence like this person being arrested several times for the same crime over the last month. And maybe he should be off the street because he's a risk. Those types of things can be discussed and judges have discretion in New Jersey. So the system is functioning much better. Well, Mandela Barnes was somebody who was advocating for the New York style system. He was advocating for categorical limitations on who could be incarcerated and who couldn't, which in New York is not working very well. So this idea that Mandela Barnes is completely immune from criticism for his stances on crime or that he's not soft on crime may be a little far fetched, too. And when you have a state that was and by the way, he lost it very closely. 
But when you have a state where the governor, the Democratic governor, basically on election night was already decided the winner, but the senator actually wound up losing, you have to look at what issues really hurt them. And the fact is, progressives and left-leaning people could say time and time again that everything Republicans say about them is just false and made up, but there is some semblance of truth. There is some semblance of truth to the soft on crime thing. And there are people on the left, especially in the farther progressive side, that are looking like they're soft on crime and it hurt the Democrats. But why did the Republicans falter so badly? Well, it's obvious that Donald Trump is the specter looming behind this entire thing. And that people, by and large, despite high inflation, despite the other problems we're facing, they do not like Donald Trump. And this coalition of suburban voters, progressive voters, well-to-do middle-class voters, it didn't work with some of the congressional races in New York State because the crime issue broke that coalition down, right? That's the Democratic coalition right now that broke that down because it separated the ultra-progressives and the city elites from the rank-and-file people who didn't buy it. But by and large, across the country, that coalition of city and progressive elites and suburban middle-class people and urban working families and urban progressive people, that coalition held largely throughout the country and it was once again a refutation of Donald Trump's politics of Trumpism in the ideological sense it was refuted once again and it shows that Joe Biden while he's not the most tactful speaker while he struggled with issues like the Afghanistan withdrawal and early on in his presidency he couldn't decide you know whether he wanted to govern as a progressive or whether he wanted to govern as a centrist and he took a lot of flack because his win on infrastructure really looked like a loss because he didn't get the progressive side of it when he should have touted it as a win which i said but now he goes around touting the infrastructure bill as a is a a huge accomplishment which it is you had the infrastructure, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is really just a massive climate change bill for the better. You had the cap on certain prescription medications. You had the bipartisan gun law, which closed certain gun loopholes, not all of them, but certain important gun loopholes. The fact is, compared to Trump and Obama, who both, by the way, you know, struggled and suffered from Congress that wasn't on the same page as them for a large part of their tenure, Trump half and Obama, you know, three quarters. But nonetheless, compared to the last decade or so, Joe Biden has quietly you know, produced and passed important bipartisan legislation. Largely, he's quiet and the country runs, although inflation is terrible. And although he's been terrible on the border, the border is an absolute mess. And I wonder if that hurts Joe Biden when it comes to the presidential election in like a place like Arizona come 2024. I'm curious. I'm curious because he's been terrible on the border. There are things wrong with him, but it just seems like people by and large, unless you're a vehement pro-Trump person, only vehement pro-Trump people are out here just screaming and yelling that things are so terrible. Things are so horrible with Biden that he needs to go, that we're a disgrace for electing, that everybody has buyer's remorse. Unless you're a Trump person, it doesn't seem like folks really believe that. Number one, inflation is a is a beast that's hard to conquer because it's the direct result of the pandemic and such an, you know, fabricated economic contraction followed by a just huge economic expansion in a, in a really, you know, 
whiplash type way and it's hard to escape and I don't think people necessarily blame Biden for that Biden actually decreased gas prices with some of his strategic releases and things like that so I don't think people blame Biden solely for that and on the other hand I think people generally still prefer the calm passing of legislation and a and a seasoned person who has shown that he's a has a good pedigree to, to be a leader and to be in government to the radical you know wild card that is Donald Trump and I also think that since 2020 even if people were going to have buyer's remorse about Biden because of economic issues even if they were going to assign to him the inflation problems and whatnot and the, their their troubles at home with their pocketbooks that Trump since with the January 6th issue and with all the evidence coming out about the insurrection and all his election denialism that people are just sick and tired of him in general and even if they were going to have buyer's remorse they don't as much anymore because they know Trump is still really dangerous to this democracy and this midterm election I mean this is probably the best the sitting president has done in 40 years And Biden is not rated very highly or very favorably. He hasn't done anything amazing. The country is in a rough place with inflation, yet he still has the best showing of a sitting president in midterm elections in 40 years. That's got to be an indictment on Trump to some large extent, especially when you take into consideration the crime issue, which did dent Democrats a little bit, but really didn't slow him down much. Really didn't slow him down much. So it's interesting now a lot of Republicans are saying, because the one exception to this midterm, the one exception to this has been Florida. Ron DeSantis in Florida not only won re-election pretty easily against Crist, and Crist was a a former governor, you know, he was a a well-known guy in Florida. Not only did he run away with that, not only did he run away with that election, but Florida, and, and I know some people are going to say it's because of gerrymandering too, which he did have a hand in, and gerrymandering is always a big problem, obviously. But, you know, at the end of the day, Florida came out pretty red still. And so a lot of Republicans, and you know, I go to get my little pulse of the conservatives. I went to the Real News No Bullshit page, checked a story about Trump attacking DeSantis, and a lot of the run-of-the-mill conservatives were getting behind DeSantis already. And it's interesting because Trump came out and started attacking DeSantis, calling him uh, Rick DeSanctimonious, and he was a pathetic candidate in 2017 who crawled to Trump for his endorsement. And now DeSantis is disloyal because he's not ruling out a run in 2024, and Trump is demanding that everybody get behind him in 2024. First of all, let me say this. The fact that the media is already like giddy because they're political junkies, I get it. They like to analyze things. They like to discuss things. But the fact that the political media is already basically giddy, kind of discussing the dynamics of a Trump versus DeSantis primary, rather than being honest and saying that, you know, look, and I'm sorry for that. There's something going on my computer. Sorry. (laughs) So a lot of technical difficulties tonight, guys. Believe it or not, I actually recorded this whole podcast once already. It was probably a little more eloquent than this one. But I lost it on technical difficulties. So here I'm recording it again because I didn't want to leave you guys hanging. So make sure you show me love and share this podcast and give me some props because I don't want to leave you hanging without a Logic and Larry episode with all this stuff going on. I'm back at it. Um, 
but Trump's calling him disloyal and all this stuff. And I'm annoyed that political pundits are so giddy to talk about the primary when the fact of the matter is that this man incited an insurrection and has tried to undermine our democracy terribly, terribly tried to undermine our democracy. And yet they're just jumping to 2024 like it's a foregone conclusion that he's the candidate. What if he gets indicted? What if he actually gets held accountable for his actions? It's obvious that the man has willfully tried to disrupt and undermine our democracy. And we're just going to pretend he's just a shoe-in candidate and it's just going to be fine? That, that's a disgrace. That, that should not be allowed to happen. That should not be allowed to happen. But I find it interesting that DeSantis might be the more favored candidate. And here's the thing. A lot of people don't like DeSantis. And I understand if you're a political, ideological progressive or you're an ideological liberal or an ideological Democrat, I completely understand why you wouldn't like Ron DeSantis, why you would be skeptical of Ron DeSantis. You might even say Ron DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump because DeSantis is smarter and more balanced and more even keeled than Trump. And he might be able to do things and get wins for the conservative side of things that Trump couldn't get because Trump is too loose with on the trigger. Trump is too unpredictable. Trump is too egomaniacal to get anything done. But to those people, I say this. I care about the sanctity of this country. I care about our democracy. I care about the well-being of this country. And to me, the most dangerous thing, we can argue about politics. You can have competing ideologies. You can despise somebody's ideology. You can despise DeSantis's tactics. You can despise DeSantis's politics. I mean, he did the stunt where he sent migrants up to Martha's Vineyard. He's just done a lot of theatrical, nonsensical things. You can, you can despise it. You can despise it. But to me, the more dangerous force in any democracy in this country or anywhere is dogmatic following of one person, the dogmatic devotion, the cult following, the cult of personality of a person. And Trump is the cult of personality. People feel like they're of a movement just obsessed with Trump. Trump could change his positions to Biden's positions tomorrow, and these people would still follow him. He could become the most progressive liberal candidate ever, and they would still follow him because it's not about politics or ideology or agendas. It's just about Trump himself. And that's really, really dangerous. When people throughout human history have had that kind of power, that's when democracies really break down. That's when people really become so devout that they'll die on the sword for them. So to me, getting rid of Trump is the most important thing for this country because he's the one who incited the insurrection. He's the one who's egomaniacal enough to attack his own party. And this shows it. The attack on DeSantis proves that Trump doesn't care. If Trump... You could hate his ideas for the country. You could hate his policies. But at least if he truly believed that those policies were truly going to help the country, he could at least argue that he cares about the well-being of the country, even if he's misguided. But the fact that he's attacking DeSantis, who might be a more viable candidate to actually bring forth his political ideology proves that he doesn't care about the country. He doesn't care about political ideas. He doesn't care about political ideals. He doesn't care about implementing systems into the country that can improve it. He only cares about his own power. He's obsessed with his own power and his own ego. And to me, that's the number one, number one trait of a really dangerous dictator, a dangerous tyrant, a dangerous person. 
that could really disrupt a free society. So to me, him, him being banished, him being taken down, him being held accountable is the most important thing if you care about American democracy. You can disagree with conservative politics. You can disagree with liberal politics. You can disagree with anything. But the fact that this midterm election really showed like looks like it was an indictment of Trumpism is one of the biggest things we can glean from it. And the fact that he is aware of it to the point that he's attacking DeSantis is interesting to me because it shows he's aware. And I'm still waiting for him to be held accountable for his actions with the January 6th stuff, among other things. But it's an intriguing thing that's going on with these midterms. And now we have to see what happens in Arizona. Kelly is in the lead as, as I'm recording this. Masters may catch up, but it's looking unlikely. Never know, though. In Nevada, the Democratic governor has conceded. But the senator, Masto, looks like she may well be on pace with the Clark County votes coming in. She may well be on pace to overtake her opponent... Laxalt and might be in a position to win, which would mean the Democrats kept the Senate in a year like this. That's crazy. That's a huge indictment of Trumpism. That's a huge lesson to be learned about the current coalitions that exist under the umbrellas of the Democrat and Republican Party. They have shifted. This is not the Democrat and Republican Party of 20 years ago, just like this is not the Democrat and Republican Party of 150 years ago. This is a different coalition under the same name of umbrellas, but the constituencies have moved around. They have shifted around. Things are different. Things are different. So it's been a really interesting week if you follow politics been a really interesting week and we'll have sean political action bracken on to kind of do a post-mortem on the polls the polls again were way off i think you know they said during the trump years that they underestimated republican votes now they're saying they underestimated democratic votes i think a lot of it is that you know polls just don't work the same anymore because people just don't have house phones the way they used to and things of that nature people aren't as willing to disclose who they're going to vote for it's harder to get a, a good read on people and so it's more unpredictable the counts are also taking longer because the, it's not people think the counts are taking longer because of some fundamental issue with them but the truth is the truth is that the counts are taking longer, too, because it's so much closer, because the country is so evenly divided these days because of these shifting coalitions and because these districts are so interesting that you just have to count every vote because they're so close. You used to be able to project a winner without finishing counting because they were so far ahead and the dynamics and the demographics and the constituencies in that district were so predictable that you didn't need to count every vote because you could tell early on who was going to win. Now they have to count every vote, which always took a long time. People just didn't know that. It still took a couple weeks to certify the final vote with the mail-in ballots and all the absentee ballots and rectifying you know, troubled ballots and defective ballots and all that. It always did. We were just able to call it and then once they call it and once the candidate knows they're going to lose they would concede the race and that would effectively end the race we're in these contentious times where no one's conceding it's really close so every ballot has to be caught you know counted and so it takes as long as it always took but now we don't know who won until it's actually done that's the only difference that's the only difference and by the way lack salt in nevada it's just interesting it's just another interesting story. It kind of goes along with everybody speculating and getting all excited about talking about Trump v. DeSantis because these are political junkies that are in and around the D.C. media who spend their time talking about these things. 
and they sometimes forget the way it affects the real people of this country. And D.C. is like that, right? They have people in D.C. that live in D.C. D.C. is a city of its own with its own social scene, its own social hierarchy, its own dynamics. And people in D.C. play games with everybody else in the rest of the country for their own end. McCarthy's already talking about how he's going to play it to become the Speaker of the House and all that. They care about their D.C. dynamics. Laxalt is the grandson of a former prominent politician in Nevada who then... The, his mother, who's the daughter of that prominent politician, conceived a child with another senator from another state or something who was Laxalt. He was born the baby of that conception. And he spent most of his time growing up in the D.C. suburbs because his parents were lobbyists in D.C. But because he has that old royalty connection to Nevada, he goes back and runs, not to go represent Nevada and spend all his time in Nevada, but to go out to there, win the seat, so he could rise up the D.C. hierarchy. And a lot of that goes on. They set people up in districts just so they can win to go back to spend most of their time in D.C. and be involved in the D.C. hierarchy rather than caring about and representing their districts. I also think that was another dynamic at play in these midterms. A lot of it was candidate-specific. People who felt the candidate represented them and were from where they were from got elected and people who they thought were imposters didn't. Pennsylvania is a good example of that. Dr. Oz lived in New Jersey up until about a year ago. Pennsylvanians, despite... Despite Fetterman's far progressive leanings, despite his health issues, despite some of the other things, they still voted for him and he wasn't really in question. He's not one of the votes we're waiting on. We already know he won because they were going to reject an imposter who was just placed there to get the seat, not to represent the state. And that's a big difference. In New Jersey, you had three sons of politicians elected this cycle. Tom Kane Jr., Donald Payne Jr., who's up for re-election many times, but still his father was the original one. And... Uh, Bob Menendez Jr. All of them are so descendant-based that they actually have the same names as their fathers. There's three juniors elected in New Jersey. It's like these congressional districts and politics has become this mini-monarchy where, yeah, we're a democracy, we elect our leaders, but they almost are chosen for us by the party machines, and the party machines are almost family-run. It's almost mini-monarchies running this country. We almost have a ruling class. And that also explains why a lot of people are disenchanted with both parties and have shifted around and why Bernie Sanders and even, you know, uh, all these young people, these far left progressives, these far right Trumpies like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Boebert and all these people get elected is because people are tired of the ruling class making decisions for them. They want somebody outside the box. Now, the problem is we're getting people outside the box way too far right or way too far left and who really don't necessarily have a semblance of how to do things. But you need more people who are equipped to run things, who are equipped to join the governing body of the country, who are not just handed it based on family inheritance. That you definitely need. It's just wrong, and it feels wrong that we have these mini monarchies all over the country. It just feels wrong. And I think people are tired of that, too. But there's, long story short, there's a lot of dynamics at play in this election. I wanted to just talk a little bit about it, recap a little bit about it, go into depth a little bit about it talk to you guys um 
I may go on a little Thanksgiving hiatus, so I may not talk to you until early December. When I come back in early December, we're going to do a final postmortem on the election because we should have the final results of who controls the Senate, who controls the House, by how much, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to have Sean Bracken on to discuss, you know, some of his predictions and some of the errors in the polling and some of the other issues with the postmortem. And then I'll take another hiatus for Christmas time, the holiday time, and I'll be back next year with a full roster of a lot of different guests. I have a lot of really interesting people. We're going to be out of election mode and back into kind of normal news mode. I've got a lot of really interesting people who have expressed interest in joining the show who want to come on and, and share their thoughts with you and share their who they are with you and what they're doing with you. So we're going to have that lined up uh, early next year, but we are going to have a couple more shows in December before the holiday break. I just may not talk to you guys till after Thanksgiving. It depends what happens. It depends how things go. I may get up and do another uh, pre-recorded show. We will see. We will see. But until then, uh, enjoy your weekend, enjoy your families, enjoy watching the rest of this uh, election play out. And uh, stay tuned for the next Logic and Larry. And look, if you like the show, I really appreciate you guys staying with me. There's so many loyal listeners. That's why I had to drop this episode. There's so many consistent listeners, and we are growing in listeners with each passing episode. So if you like the show, just go ahead and share it with people. Uh, Go ahead and share it with whoever you think might be interested. Keep listening. I really appreciate it. Reach out to me. I I love the discussion about what's what goes on in the show. Um, and just keep do, doing you keep uh, being a member of this family we're doing doing the work that needs to be done in the in the public discourse so I will talk to you guys very soon and until then have a beautiful night and have a beautiful life have beautiful lives I should say <laughs> sorry it's late but uh, I'll talk to you guys all very soon good night <laughs>